De-escalation for everyone involved benefits the safety of the person who may be acting violently, people they're interacting with, other civilians, and the law enforcement and other first responders themselves. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike. I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, share some emotional support, and might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Nope, I sure won't forget your wine. Thank you, dear. (laughs) So dementia in its many forms has been referred to as the hidden disease, mostly because dementia and the many, many sufferers of the different types of dementia are kept out of the public eye, uh, isolated, so to speak. And and also their caregivers, because very often they're doing it on their own and they don't have an opportunity to be in the community. I often refer to it as an army of millions doing it alone. And I think that's one of the reasons why people aren't aware about how widespread this is and how fast it's growing. That brings us to today's guest who has worked on the federal, state, and local dementia policy since 1996 and is the executive director of the Leaders Engaged on Alzheimer's Disease, or LEAD Coalition, which unites the voice of over 200 member and allied organizations to accelerate transformational progress in care and support to enrich the quality of life of those with dementia and their caregivers. He holds degrees from Washington University in St. Louis and the University of Michigan School of Law. We are pleased to welcome Ian Kramer. Thank you, Ian, for joining us. Thank you, Bobby. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mike. So we understand that you're a family caregiver. In addition to all the wonderful work that you do to support caregivers, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, my my family's been hit multiple times by cognitive impairments, Uh, lost a grandparent on each side, my mother's father and my father's mother. And uh, that was over 30 years ago that each of them passed away. But I I witnessed long distance uh, that journey uh, and saw what my parents went through as long distance family caregivers, what their siblings went through closer to being on site uh, with my grandparents. And uh, my mother passed away about four years ago, and it was around that time that, uh, of course, I started spending a lot more time with my father and began to notice some of his own changes. Both of my parents were academics, career academics, so enormous cognitive reserve. And I think that my father's cognitive reserve uh, helped him not necessarily hide symptoms, but maybe masked the symptoms both to himself and to the rest of the family. But when my mother was gone, his his better half for almost 60 years, and he lost his sense of purpose because he had been caregiving for her when she had non-cognitive health challenges. When he lost her and lost that purpose, it kind of revealed a lot of what was changing for him. And of course, as these diseases progress, whatever cognitive reserve you've got that's been protective or giving you essentially workarounds for the challenges that you have, well, that starts to slip. That that cognitive reserve only takes you so far. Um, Ian, I wonder, 
if you might explain what cognitive reserve is. It's something that I first learned when I was caring for Mike's dad, who, you know, had an amazing intellect. He spoke seven languages and, you know, he had degrees in mathematics and literature. And that came up during his his time. Um, he was eventually I guess, diagnosed with Lewy body dementia, but we never actually heard those words until after he had passed away. But it's one of the things that the doctors talk to me about, his, his cognitive reserve, but I'm not sure that everybody understands what that is. Yeah, and I'm sorry, it's a bit of a technical term, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping it'll get into the, into the public domain a little bit more. So this is a very loose comparison, but think of it as somebody who's physically very, very fit but then begins to have some health challenges. Well, if they start at a high level of physical fitness, they've got a reserve to draw on as their body fights back against or recovers from some more traditional, common, better understood kind of health condition. So, you know, think about somebody who breaks their leg and has to spend a few weeks or even longer laid up in bed and and their body begins to weaken because they just aren't getting a chance to use it. But if they went into that experience of being temporarily bed, bed bound, if they went into that experience very strong physically, well, yeah, they're going to lose some of that strength, but they're going to have a lot left for when they get out, when they're able to get out of bed again. So cognitive reserve is a little like that. If you built up the brain muscle, well, when things start to attack it, you start from a better point. And yes, you're, you're going to have some loss but you have a lot more to work with because you began with a lot more to work with. And, and to a limited extent, this is about advanced education, but really it's more about just using your brain actively, whether you have a lot of formal education or not, if you've spent your life learning inside or outside of a classroom matters much less, just learning, exercising the brain muscle, you're in a better place if and when some sort of cognitive impairment, a disease like Alzheimer's starts to attack you. It's still going to attack you. It's still going to cut into that reserve, but you just start at a better beginning. So we want to exercise our brain as much as we want to exercise our bodies. Absolutely. Now, one of the things when, uh, during the introduction, um, we talked about dementia as a hidden disease. And one of the things I know you've been involved with, and I don't know to what level, but you've been involved with Dementia Friendly America, and we have also. So could you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Dementia Friendly America and what the purpose of that is and what else you're trying to do to help the community? Sure. Yeah. Dementia Friendly America is a fabulous organization. And in a way, it's it's an ensemble of organizations. There is a national backbone, if you will, called Dementia Friendly America. And that's a, a very informal but collaborative coalition of mostly national organizations that, like the LEAD Coalition, helped start this effort at a national level, put resources into it, and wanted to build out at a local level a network of communities that believed in making their communities not only more accessible, but more inclusive for people facing Alzheimer's disease, other diseases that cause dementia, and the people in the ecosystem of the person who might be living with one of these diseases, family carers, community providers, law enforcement, public transportation, 
all sectors that that should be accessible to and inclusive of people that are facing dementia should be part of this movement. So uh, what we do at the national level is really just try to provide a clearinghouse and some expertise, but we don't tell any local community what their priorities ought to be. It's got to be ground up because what's meaningful in Tallahassee might be slightly different than what's meaningful in Manhattan, Kansas, where I grew up, or in Albuquerque, or Sacramento. So let folks at the local level determine their priorities for what will make their community more welcoming, more inclusive, uh, more dignified for people that are facing dementia. Yeah, I know our local group works with churches, they work with um, stores, they work with restaurants, um, trying to make sure that people with um, dementia of any kind and their caregivers are able to be out in the community and people will understand when somebody with dementia is, you know, in their store or in their restaurant. And there's actually a local restaurant that sets um, a table aside. And, the, you know, the wait staff is aware these people might be concerned, th- those kind of things. So, yeah, that's the su- kind of support we need more and more of. Yeah. And if, if you don't mind, I'll just give you a, a, another example from a, another area which I think it, for me has always been very instructive in why dementia friendly matters and frankly, why it shouldn't be hard to achieve. It, it is hard because not everybody buys in, but why operationalizing it once you have the will shouldn't be that hard. So think, think back to the disability rights movement. And 50 years ago, when we started to see things like cut curbs at the, at the end of a sidewalk when you'd come to an intersection, or the electronic sliding doors uh, at, say, a public library or a grocery store, et cetera, medical buildings. Right. Those accommodations were designed as accommodations for people with mobility challenges, with disabilities of movement. They benefit all of us. And now most of us take those for granted. And if we come to a public building that doesn't have those electronic sliding doors, we're a little surprised and a little annoyed because we're carrying groceries or whatever. And if we come to an intersection and there isn't a cut cut curb and we're pushing a stroller, we're a little annoyed. How am I gonna get my stroller up over this curb? So we take those things for granted and, and the accommodations, things we call accommodations for people with dementia are really things that would benefit not only them, but everyone else. And I'll give you one practical example. Banks, incredibly important that banks be aware of financial exploitation that can be perpetrated against people with cognitive impairment. Well, they should be aware of that same exploitation that could happen to any of us, even if we don't have a cognitive impairment. So it's the same kind of awareness, training, and expertise that we want from people serving all members of the public. It's interesting that you mentioned banks because it, it brought back a memory of when my aunt and uncle were caring for my grandfather many years ago. And, you know, they lived in the same community all of their lives. And Gramps went went to the local bank and told them that they were robbing him blind. Well, because they knew the family, um, they were able to call and, you know, get him home safely. But now we don't live in the same communities all the time where people know everybody. And right. so somebody could go in and access uh, somebody's bank account, especially with someone with dementia 
who answers questions or might leave a wallet or nowadays a credit card lying around. Um, there's not that safety net of everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And, you know, you could say the same thing for law enforcement. I, I, I grew up in a very small college town in Kansas, and I'm not saying everyone knew everyone, but there was a general level of familiarity. You recognize faces at least. And if somebody got pulled over, well, maybe they didn't know that particular law enforcement officer, but there'd be a reference point. You know, they'd be able to say, who are your parents? And they might know the parents or or the neighborhood or something. And there, there'd be some familiarity, some level of trust. Most people don't live in those kind of communities anymore. And we need law enforcement to be sensitive to all people, whether they're dealing with a disability or not dealing with a, di- a disability. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to get us off onto a tangent about police reform, but, but part of police reform ought to be comprehensive training about people with all variety of disabilities, whether it's autism, Alzheimer's disease, vision impairment, hearing impairment, other things that can produce a better or a worse interaction between a civilian and a member of law enforcement. Well, one of the things we try to do is reach out to law enforcement agencies to give them some education on how to respond. Um, And I also recommend anybody who's living with somebody with has a dementia, if they have to call for some reason, they inform them and also the ambulance or anything like that, that there is someone with dementia in the home. Um, So at least they're aware of if they see behaviors that they think might be aggressive or something like that. That's one of the things that I've been uh, researching and looking into is how is somebody identified or uh, a place identified when there's a 911 call that goes in, how do the police know, right? Because in our case, there's no local police, it's the county police. And you don't know who's going to be on shift at any given time in any place in the county. So how how does that get in to the county uh, ambulance, the county police? Um, and I've even talked on a um, small scale level back in my hometown, which was uh, in Pittsburgh, in, in the suburb of Pittsburgh. Uh, I talked to a guy I grew up with who was just retired as chief of police. And I asked him and he says, well, you know, they don't have the big electronic services like they do now. And it's on um, index cards. And so when somebody calls in, gives the location, they look for the location in the Rolodex cards. And they see it's annotated there. If somebody calls in, then they know and they have a way forward to go in. And so I'm looking to try to get, see what is in place now. What is part of the training now? And, and again, on a local level, I'm, I don't even pretend to be anything national like what you and your group are, but that's one of my advocacies. You know, I, I cut my teeth in, in dementia advocacy on this issue of law enforcement training around cognitive impairment. So back in 96, uh, late 96, when I first started doing this work, um, I was working for a local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association in Virginia, and my job was go to Richmond, the state capital, and persuade legislature uh, the, the legislature and the and the governor to do better by people with dementia. And the first piece of legislation I got introduced early in twenty in um, nineteen ninety seven was a, a piece with the support of the Fraternal Order of the Police and of Police and the Sheriffs Association and others to have 
not mandated that all law enforcement officers across Virginia got dementia training, but mandating that it was available to all of them. So we didn't require any individual sheriff's deputy or or beat cop to get this training. We just made sure they all had access to it. And they lined up in droves. Hmm. And the best witness we had testifying before the legislature to get this legislation was your absolutely most stereotypical possible Southern sheriff from rural Virginia. And he got up big, burly, frankly, kind of scary looking dude, (laughs) got up in front of the General Assembly and tears streaming down his face as he recounted stories of going into situations not knowing that somebody had cognitive impairment ahead of time, your point about the Rolodex or the database, but more important, not knowing how to recognize it when he saw it. And he talked about a situation where he broke a little old lady's arm because he didn't know how to restrain her safely, and he didn't know that she was no threat to him, that she was scared because she was disoriented by the, by the dementia she was living with. And he begged for that training, and he got that training. Wow. And thousands and thousands of officers in Virginia get that training. And we, we expanded that training later to include 911 dispatchers, EMTs, magistrates, everyone in the legal system and the first responder system, firefighters who might interact. And Bobby, to your point, I I promise I'll take a breath after this. It's really important to have databases or Rolodex cards where families are able to and willing to pre-identify someone in the household. But it's even more important that law enforcement officers, other first responders are trained to recognize the possibility that not to make an on-the-spot diagnosis, but to be sensitive to the possibility that they're interacting with somebody who may be cognitively compromised. We need that for Alzheimer's. We need that for autism. We need it for Down syndrome. We need it across the board. And law enforcement wants it, and first responders want it. So it's our job to make it available. I actually had one of the local sheriff's deputies come in and speak to a caregiver support group that I've had for the last six years. Um, And in part, I did that because I had a woman in the group. She was in her 70s. She was caring for her mother in her 90s. And uh, mom got very aggressive, and she actually went outside, and she was attacking her daughter. And a neighbor saw it and and called the police. And... um, the officer who had not been trained looked at this 70-year-old and said, what's the matter? Can't you defend yourself against a 90-year-old woman? And she said, I'm not going to respond physically to my mother. And his response was, then why did you call us? And then she said, I didn't. The neighbor did and just go away and leave us alone. Now, we know that that happens. And our job along with yours, is to make sure that that happens less and less often till it, till it doesn't happen at all. Yeah. And th- this is about public safety. It's also, frankly, about the safety of the first responders. They need to know what they're going into. And if they don't know before they get there, they need to be able to recognize it once they're there. And, you know, there, there's a big movement across this country, and it's and it's a really valuable, important one that can benefit a lot of a lot of parts of our community, not only to educate 
law enforcement broadly to recognize some of these challenges, but to understand how to de-escalate situations, even if they can't pinpoint exactly what's going on. De-escalation for everyone involved benefits the safety of the person who may be acting violently or in some other way of concern, people they are interacting with, other civilians, and the law enforcement and other first responders themselves. You know, we had um, a local sheriff's deputy that lived a couple houses away. And my dad, who had been um, cheeking his meds and then spitting them out, um, and we were not aware of it. And so his, uh, my dad also had schizophrenia. So the antipsychotic drugs, he was spitting them out and created a situation where he thought Bobby was trying to poison him with the food. And he ran three doors up to the sheriff's deputy and knocked on the door trying to get help. And this guy was anything but helpful and basically threatened to arrest Bobby and my dad. Both of us. Or or Bobby if she wouldn't get my dad off of his front lawn. And um, fortunately... The neighbor on the other side ran to the fellow that lives behind me who was on the hostage negotiation team. And and this this is the segue right from your de-escalating a situation. And he came up, he showed his badge, and he was able to talk my dad out of the panic situation. Right. And and soothe the situation to the point where we could get my dad to the hospital and get him the help that he needed, which was get him back on his medication. But we saw firsthand the just horrible reaction to the situation and then how somebody was able to calmly de-escalate the situation. And um, your your response of de-escalate just sparked that synapse of, the, of that memory of working. Now, the deputy uh, no longer is employed in the county. Uh, after, I think it was about three months later, he was dismissed. But um, uh, from what I understand, we weren't the only complaint against this, this deputy. But yeah, de-escalating a situation is a total, total skill set that's not always common. <laughs> well, that's also something that that uh, a lot of my presentations focus on de-escalating within the home. Um, right. And so many people walk into dementia care not understanding what these behaviors are about and what brings them on and what might upset somebody or how to calm them once they become upset. And a lot of times it's just kind of backing away. Um, you know, I heard... Uh, a police officer say their training is to rush in. But when you're dealing with dementia, that's the last thing you want to do. You want to be calm and you want to approach slowly if you can. Um, so these uh, workshops in this education is, is making a huge difference. Now, when I introduced you, I said there were like 200 organizations. So there, there's got to be so much more to what you do that, our listeners, I know, would like to hear about. Yeah, we have about 100 member organizations and a little over 100 others that I, I like to say they play well with others. They haven't formally joined the coalition, but they <laughs> are collaborative and wonderful partners. And uh, I don't worry too much about the silos of who's an official member and who's not. It's 
It's about going arm in arm into the fray and trying to make the world a better place together. And we do that on a, on a wide range of issues. We're organized as a federal public policy coalition, which is a fancy way of saying we try to get the U.S. federal government, Congress and, and uh, federal agencies to do better by people facing dementia. And you can do that in a lot of ways. I'm happy to give God examples. But <laughs> the, the other big thing we do that's a less formal part of our mission as a coalition, but it's at least as important is trying to do matchmaking between organizations that are doing good work but need more partners. And so, you know, sometimes a group like AARP that isn't one of our members but is a fabulous partner for us, they might be doing something really important around a big prior, priority of theirs is, is brain health. So they might be doing a big initiative to get brain health education out to their members. And it's something like 40 million people that are their members. So that's a nice audience. We may have other organizations in our coalition that can bring some additional expertise to the table and better inform those messages that AARP is providing. Organizations that might have nowhere near the reach. Some of our organizations probably can't even imagine directly reaching 40 million people. AARP can reach 40 million people in its proverbial sleep. But for all the expertise AARP has, they could always use a little more. So I may be able to do some matchmaking, get organizations together to collaborate, either in trying to change a federal government policy or just change the way day-to-day average Americans interact with people with dementia or learn about dementia or learn how to maybe reduce their risk for dementia. One of the things um, when I was researching uh, having you on the show is that you were involved in the government funding for the National Alzheimer's Project Act. And from what I understand, that was a few years ago that that started out, and it's still in committee. How do you not get frustrated and throw up your arms and say, I give up? The thing called the National Alzheimer's Project Act, NAPA, that did pass into law. And that, I believe, was in late 2010. Um, President Obama signed it into law. It set up a federal advisory council to advise the federal government, federal agencies, and Congress about good policy around Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. And that's been in law for about a decade, doing great work. That's produced a lot of great results. But you're right. There are a variety of pieces of legislation to support family caregivers that are struggling to get through Congress. And I I think some are getting some more momentum this year, and we may see them pass next year. Um, The Alzheimer's Association, as an example, has a suite of three pieces of legislation that are all incredibly important. I I would not be surprised to see at least one, maybe all three of those pass uh, sometime, probably not this calendar year, but probably next calendar year. And, And one of those is around caregiver support. Another one I'd really like to highlight, if you don't mind, is around trying to have... Sure clinical trials, the, the the medical research that will eventually lead to better treatments and maybe maybe eventually an outright cure for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, have that research be more representative of the people that will actually use these medical products. So I won't bore you and your listeners with too much detail, but but these very formal, carefully designed, carefully implemented research trials 
tend to have very narrow constraints on who's allowed to participate. And, and two of the biggest problems are what are called exclusion criteria. So if you have certain other medical conditions, they don't let you into the study. And that can include medical conditions that a huge percentage of people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia have in real life. So as an example, if the study says, well, if you have diabetes, you can't be in our Alzheimer's study, I understand methodologically why that's important for a research study, but it's crazy in the real world because huge percentages, I, I apologize, I don't know the number off my head, but probably north of 20 or 30% of people with Alzheimer's have diabetes. So you'd kind of like to know if these Alzheimer's meds work better or worse for people that have Alzheimer's and diabetes or Alzheimer's and hypertension or Alzheimer's and name another condition that might be excluded. The other big problem, and the one that this legislation from the Alzheimer's Association particularly aims at, is that most of these research studies in Alzheimer's, but also in lots of other diseases, typically they're full of white people. And there's nothing wrong with having lots of white people in your study. The problem is not having enough non-white people in your study. Because in the real world, African-Americans are two to three times more likely than Caucasians to have Alzheimer's disease. Hispanic Latinos, one and a half to two times more likely. So if we don't study how these drugs work in African-Americans and Latinos, then we don't know how they're going to work in those populations once they're on the open market. Are they going to work well? Are they going to be dangerous? We just don't have answers. We need answers. That's one of the things that we recently addressed, because one of the things that we want to do with this podcast is reach as many different communities as we possibly can and provide the best information that we can. Um, I'd like to ask um, if someone in our listening area hears about LEAD and thinks that they might be able to offer some value to LEAD, is there criteria for them to come to you and say, hey, I love what you're doing. I'd like to be a part of it. What do I do now? Well, it's a good question. I have a little bit of a painful answer. As a coalition, we are not consumer facing. And what I mean by that is we don't have individual grassroots members of our coalition. We have organizations as members of our coalition. Now, if that individual who's coming to me works with or represents an organization that would be interested and that organization would like to work on federal public policy, then they're welcome to get in touch with me and and you know I'm I'm happy to share my contact information later in in the conversation if that's appropriate. Um, or they can get in touch with you and you can connect us. For individuals that want to be activated, that want to be grassroots advocates and help make the world a better place for people living with dementia or at risk of living with dementia, I would suggest two things. One is lots of our member organizations are consumer-oriented. They, they do have grassroots members. And so anybody can go on our website and on the homepage, you'll see a list of every one of our member organizations and you can just click through and get to that organization's website. And our website is LEAD, L-E-A-D, coalition, all one word, leadcoalition.org. 
So go there, check out the organizations that are involved with us, and please, by all means, volunteer for those organizations. They all need your help. The other is what Mike mentioned, and Bobby, you you were discussing this as well, dementia-friendly America. If your community has a dementia-friendly effort, join it. If your community doesn't have a dementia-friendly effort, you can help create it. So that website where you can get more information is dfamerica.org. And tremendous community-based resources, but also a starter kit. So if, if you aren't part of a big, powerful local organization, you're just one individual who cares, there are resources on dfamerica.org that can help empower you to make change in your local community and frankly also help you identify community leaders that could maybe take on the work of building a local dementia-friendly effort. Awesome. That's a great answer. Yes, absolutely. I, I wish I could have my own grassroots advocates. I am a staff of one. And so uh, I'm afraid if I built it, they might come. And uh, <laughs> your army of millions, while valuable, should be an army for the Alzheimer's Association, for us against Alzheimer's, for Cure Alzheimer's Fund, mm-hmm. many other fabulous organizations around the country. I, do, I just don't have the bandwidth to handle it myself. I wish I did. Well, I'll tell you, um, again, as I say just about every episode, if not every episode, I certainly learned a lot. And really, really thank you for agreeing to be uh, on our show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So one of the things I got, and obviously because I talked about it and and he talked about it, was de-escalating situations and how important that de-escalation is. And as you said, their training is, uh, the first responders training is to run in as opposed to step back. And, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be a hard nut to crack. Well, and if, if we know that, say for instance, if, if I should develop a dementia and you need to call, you can greet them at the door if that's the, it's the only way and say, understand she has a dementia um, let's go in slowly, that kind of thing. And that's part of the education that we put out, you know, as part of this podcast. Right. Ian has put together and is working with an amazing group of people. Um, and I think possibly one of the reasons why, you know, legislation is getting passed is more and more people are having it touch their lives. True. And our legislators are, most of them, uh, uh, in that age group where so they, somebody in their family has been touched by one of these dementias, because we know at least one in, you know, one in three, they say, and you figure, like I've talked about, we have four children, adult children who have spouses, who have family members, who have parents. Um, it's almost a given that it's going to touch the family. Right. And one of the other things was pushing for the legislation and how the Americans with Disability Act was a long, long process. And now there's so many things that we take for granted that actually came out of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Hopefully, hopefully things will move out of committee and things will get into votes and get signed into law that assets for the caregivers and for people with dementia 
will become second nature, like the uh, conveniences, the the curve, the the corners and the ramps and the sliding doors have become um, second nature for physical disabilities that these kind of assets will become second nature for those with dementia. Well, I hope one of the big takeaways that our listeners learn from this is is about dementia-friendly America, yes. because that becomes dementia-accessible America, right. which means not only the people with the dementia, but also their caregivers can be out in the community. And, you know, isolation is one of the things that caregivers um, suffer from on a regular basis. So the more we can normalize this, because again, almost every family is is being affected by it, the better off we're all going to be. Um, I am so glad that we reached out to Ian today and that he shared so much with us. You can find more information about Ian in the LEAD Coalition on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or an issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.